Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening, more specifically, to the latest installment in My April Diary. A couple months ago, I found Sleepy Goodwill in a desolate place that had some amazing finds for thrifting. I bought a $3 film-developing apparatus and then flipped it on eBay for $17.50. I bought two unopened boxes of HP toner, printer ink. One of those cartridges was red and the other one was black. But each one cost only $3 and I sold the black one for $70 and I sold the red one for $45. For just $2 at this particular Goodwill, I bought a Joel Austin Ministries Bible, still in its original shrink wrap with the suggested $50 MSRP printed on the back, and I sold that $2 Joel Austin Bible for $28. The last of those three transactions did give me something of an issue because I got hung up wondering if it was somehow vulgar to find a Joel Austin's Ministry Bible for $2 and then sell it on eBay for $28. But then I remembered a story. Joel Austin is a gazillionaire televangelist and his megachurch, which is located in Texas, kind of made the news a few years ago in a very hush-hush way when it was robbed. $200,000 in cash and $400,000 in checks had been stolen from a safe at Joel Austin Ministries. Again, it wasn't a huge news item, but when word of it did leak out, Joel Austin's ministry was very quick to reach out and say to its millions of followers that you don't have to worry, nothing is wrong. The simple Christian sum of $600,000 that had been stashed away in a safe at this megachurch was, they said, fully insured. and would be paid back to them by their insurer. Everything was going to be fine. A little while after that, a plumber at the megachurch was tending to a loose toilet. He removed the toilet from the wall and found, stashed among insulation inside, a large but undisclosed amount of money wrapped in envelopes, piles of cash and checks. He turned the money over to his employers at the church, who likely just blinked at it when it appeared on their desk, and then he called into a nearby radio station to tell the story. All this cash, he said, it was missing for so long, it was causing such a problem, and the whole time, it was right there. The story spread, reporters got interested, and police and church staff ended up telling the New York Times that the money that was found behind the toilet was definitely related to the robbery, which would mean that it was, quite likely, the very sum of money on which the church had collected their insurance. But fortunately, it was not stolen, as we can see. It was simply, if this was the same money, it was simply misplaced. Someone accidentally bundled the money up and wrapped it in insulation and moved a toilet out of a wall and put it in the wall and then put the toilet back and then left it there. This is what people in the insurance business refer to as human error. The plumber later lamented to the New York Times, that nobody from Austin's church had ever reached out to him to say thank you. Anyways, I did sell that Bible, but I, I paid for the shipping.
Today, I went back to that goodwill in question, what resellers refer to as a honey hole, which is a place full of cheap items that will resell for a high price. But when I got to the goodwill, I found that the set prices for DVDs and video games and books and men's clothing had all gone up. Turns out I had caught the honey hole at the end of its uh, of its honey holeness. Don't be upset that it's over, I told myself. I'd just, just be glad that it happened. I did get one book for myself, though, a hardcover art thing by Paul Auster called The Story of My Typewriter. There's beautiful artwork throughout the book by an artist named Sam Messer, and the premise for the book is that Messer, who was a friend of the author, saw Paul Auster's typewriter and fell in love with it. He started drawing and painting it over and over. In the pages of this book, Sam Messer has also drawn and painted Paul Auster himself, who at the time of the book's publication has owned that typewriter for about 40 years. And Auster is himself strangely drawable. He has large eyes and very sharp features, very low, dark widow's peak, kind of Heathcliffy. Paul Auster says toward the end of the book that when he last placed an order for 50 ink ribbons from his normal source of acquisition, it took several days for his broker to get that many ink ribbons together. He's insinuating that as time goes by and the typewriter becomes increasingly obsolete, the ink ribbons are becoming increasingly rare. This might explain why the book is only about a hundred sentences long, and it might explain why Paul Auster says, in the book's final pages, that when these 50 ink ribbons run out, he doesn't think he'll ever be able to find another one. Paul Auster is 76 years old now, and I think he wrote this book when he was in about his mid-60s, which is also roughly the age at which I've known several colleagues and relatives to start casually predicting the extinction of things that they enjoy. Democracy, restaurants. I work now at a grocery store, and we keep getting updates about a bird flu that's been running through American farms for several months. The bird flu is killing a lot of chickens, and the price of eggs has gone up accordingly. But given everything that's going on in the world at the moment, it's no surprise that this bird flu is not exactly a front-page story. Relatively few of our shoppers seem to know about it. Whenever we bring it up, it seems instead, by the look of surprise and forgiveness in the eyes of these customers, that they simply came to the conclusion that this is a wonderful grocery store that is just acutely irrational when it comes to poultry. At least once a day, while I'm bagging their groceries, an older customer will tell me that eggs have been an affordable dietary staple their entire life, and that they're sorry to see that this is no longer the case, and that it will never be the case again. And they fold their arms and they tell me, yes, yes, it is true, that they can tell I don't believe it, but it is in fact true. They tell me that my children will never taste an egg in their life. That my children and I will gather together for family meals, and in the morning I will say to them, can someone pass me the eggs? And my children will say, What's that? And sometimes after these dreary pronouncements, they'll shrug, and they'll fold their arms, and they'll face the storefront and gaze out at traffic, and then they'll click their tongue like it's no big deal. Fortunately, they say, I won't be around to see it. The way they say it, the way they just casually pronounce that this thing, like so many other things in their life, is about to vanish forever, what I think they're doing is they're trying to convey, with that air of resignation, that they have suffered so much loss in their life that it doesn't bother them to lose things anymore. But that the reason they're actually bringing this up and presenting that kind of facade is because they want you to recognize how much they've lost and extend condolences. This casual shrugging prognosis about the extinction, the impending cosmic unaffordability of eggs, is actually a way of their saying that they feel they have just lost something. That an increasingly globalized, inclusive, technology-centric 21st century is just growing increasingly alien, increasingly exclusive. Depending on my mood, it's maybe funny or annoying while I'm standing there listening to it, but I do understand it. The grief. All of this is to say that I do think 
At the end of the day, Paul Auster will be able to find typewriter ribbons for as long as he needs them. That Paul Auster might in fact be surprised, after all, by the things some people are selling online.